0: Okay, so uh, it is kind of an exciting um, day for us at, at our church. It's it's actually eight years uh, in the making. It was in the fall of two thousand and eight that we in- embarked on this journey together. That we called at that time the Growing for God's Glory Building Campaign. God in His sovereign, gracious purposes had grown um, His church, and we were we were out of room, uh, tripping over each other. Uh, so after much prayerful consideration, we decided to build. And over the past eight years, we have been doing that. And you have been sacrificially and faithfully um, giving, for which I'm deeply thankful. And a couple of years ago, we renamed the campaign uh, Finish Strong. You know, it kind of waned a little bit, and we just wanted to finish strong and uh, to to get into the building. And again, you sacrificially gave, and we were able to do that. And so this morning, uh, we opened half the building, the atrium, which will serve as that large uh, gathering space and the two floors of educational space. Little Alliance, formerly um, uh, Awali Oasis, is meeting up there. As as Michael said, uh, right now the adult ed space for those new um, connection groups. It's all very exciting, providing much needed space to continue. Now listen, to continue to proclaim the gospel. And, and, and gospel life. That is to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ and then be discipled in their new faith. That, that is why we're here. Not to build a, a monument to our supposed success, whatever that is, but to make and build disciples. This is our mission statement. This is every church's mission statement. To make and build disciples in and an increasingly hostile culture. Last week, in our continuing study of the Gospel of Mark, we heard Jesus plainly, very clearly share His mission uh, that He came to bear a cross. Go to Jerusalem, be handed over to the religious authorities, be killed, but then to be raised again on the third day. He, He followed that by telling us that as His followers, we too... Bear cross. Now I know you're very excited to hear that, uh, but 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 given this special day, I decided to take a little break from Mark. Sorry, Andrew. Uh, But but don't get excited. It's only it's only for today. Let's take a break and see how the early church responded to success, (laughs) growth, and the resulting rising opposition. See how they responded to their cross. I think think you'll see why I've chosen this particular text. I think it will encourage us today in the midst of celebration and opposition. The story is found in the book of Acts. You can turn to Acts chapter 4 if you'd like us where we'll get to eventually. Jesus, uh, by this point, has already been killed and and raised from the dead. In fact, He ascended uh, into heaven in Acts chapter 1, reminding His disciples uh, before his departure, uh, that they were to wait in Jerusalem until the coming of the Holy Spirit. He told them that when the Holy Spirit come, can, uh, comes, that, that, that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of uh, of the earth. In, in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came, just as promised, and this fledgling band of disciples was empowered, filled and empowered uh, to boldly proclaim the gospel. The, the, the church was born with 3,000 people added to this small group of 120 early disciples. 3,000, not by rearranging saints. 3,000 new believers. Things were going very well. This would astonish any church growth guru. Which brings us to the the next story, the, the text that I want us to look at is actually the next story found in two chapters, chapters 3 and, and chapter 4. You see, the church was experiencing new gains, record-breaking growth, but with rising, again, success, came rising opposition. We get to chapter 3, beginning of this story. Peter and John are on their way to the temple to pray at the time of prayer. They get to the, this temple gate that's called the Beautiful Gate, and there lay a man crippled, don't miss this, from birth. He was a beggar. This was the way that he made his living. He could, he could do no, no else. Peter fixed his eyes on him, looked at him, and gave him far more than the paltry alms for which he was begging. Peter said, I don't, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus the Nazarene, walk. And Remember, this man had been lame from birth, which means he had no muscles, And he had no knowledge of how to walk, but when Jesus heals, he does so completely and and fully. This man rose to his feet and went more than just walking, leaping into the temple, clinging to Peter and John and praising God. A crowd gathered, find out what all the commotion was about, and as they arrived, they saw this man whom they had seen for years as a crippled beggar completely healed. So this is crowd gathered, and, and Peter, not wanting to miss an opportunity, preached the gospel to this crowd, and, and we read that the number of believing men alone, just the men was 5,000. I mean, this is like 20,000 people. This is like a megachurch. <laughs> all that activity, not to mention the fact that he was teaching the resurrection. The rulers of the Jews, chief priests, they were members of this they were Sadducees who didn't believe in resurrection, you see. Uh, the Sanhedrin got quite upset. They arrested Peter and John, threw them in jail overnight. The next morning, they were summoned to stand before the Sanhedrin. That is the ruling council of Jews to explain their actions. The, the rulers, you see, asked this question, by what power or in what name have you done this? You see, there could be no denying the just like with Jesus, there could be no denying the miracle. The man standing there completely healed. So how did you do it? It's an open invitation for Peter to share again, which he um, immediately sees. Now now stop right there. This is Peter, the guy who denied that he even knew Jesus just a few weeks previous to a little servant girl. Now he is standing in front of the, the, the very group, the Jewish rulers who had killed Jesus, and he Preaches. What's the difference? <laughs> the Holy Spirit. The same spirit you have. Peter proclaimed the death, burial, and resurrection to this group, boldly proclaiming salvation was to be found in, in, in no one else, for there was no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. You know that verse? That's where it happened, right here. <laughs> Jewish believers who killed Jesus, you better be saved by him. It was at this point in the narrative, after a brief private conference, the Sanhedrin commanded these two not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. And thus began the, the first persecution, if you will, of the Christian church, a church whose history would be filled to the present day with the same opposition. They were threatened and released. What was the nature of the threats? We can only imagine that they crucified Jesus, who claimed to be the Messiah, we can only imagine what they would do to these two who made the same claim, only now claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, let me point out that this was a very significant point in the history of the church. They had just been commanded not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus anymore. In fact, they had been th- threatened. What would they do? The church, listen carefully, the church, humanly speaking... Was on the verge of extinction. To obey the command for fear of reprisal would have spelled spiritual disaster, the fate of future generations weighed in the, ba- in the balance. W- w- would the culmination of redemptive history be communicated beyond these few thousand? This megachurch in Jerusalem, was that enough? <laughs> the, the, the disciples had at least, I'm suggesting, Three options from which to choose, options which Christians have chosen throughout the centuries. The first is what I'm going to call the monastic option. The monastic option. They could have said, you know, this world is so corrupt, we can have nothing to do with them. They are of the devil. So the only thing that we can do as Christians is to retreat from the world. And in fact, that happened in a big way in the 1800s with the onset of higher criticism. And, and, the, and the criticism of the church, the church withdrew from culture, built walls that they hid behind to stay nice and warm and safe. I do not want our new building to be, be that for us. You know your church history. It's exactly what they did from the very beginning. They moved to the desert. They hid in caves. They became somewhat of a curiosity. People flocked to them, placing them on a spiritual pedestal. You see, there was not that much to do to entertain people of that day, no Netflix or anything. So a hermit in the desert became quite the attraction. I'm not sure if they sold tickets or not. when people came out to see them, these recluses went to even greater extremes. One of them was a guy named Simon Stylides who decided literally to put himself on a pedestal. He built a four-by-four four platform, platform and put it on top of a pole. As people came to see him, he built it higher. And so by the end of his life, he had lived on that four-by-four four platform for 30 years. And the pole on which it was erected was now 70 Feet high. It's one way to remove yourself from the world. Not not, not exactly a biblical way, but it's one way. Monastic option. We can do the same thing today if we are not careful. We can build physical walls or, or relational barriers that just as effectively separate us from the world. One of the ways that we do that is to spend all of our time with Christians. Here's a, question. You, you can, here's a question you can ask yourself, and you can answer. Do you have any non-Christians as friends? If, if someone doesn't pop into your mind right now, you have been very successful in building a relational barrier. You little hermits. Not actually in my notes. <laughs> Another option which Christians had chosen when facing persecution, is to give in to the culture, to give in to the governing authorities. After all, they're in charge, right? And so to, to disobey might mean death, and a live disobedient Christian is better than a dead obedient one, right? So Christians under the threat of opposition have ceased their, their witness. Some have even denied their Lord. There is, however, a third option, the one which they chose. How did they respond to this threat not to share Christ? what was their reaction as the church faced extinction you, you you already know the answer after all you are here this morning you know that future generations heard the good news of jesus you are part of those future generations you actually probably know the end of the story you know that after being told to be silent about Jesus, the disciples were not silent. But as we get to the end of the story this morning, the end of chapter 4, I want us to look at what they did to learn some things, the best way to respond to opposition, the best way to react when persecuted for our faith, especially when we are opposed for sharing our faith. The end of the story is found in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31, how do the disciples respond to the threat? Look at it with me. Verse 23 says, uh, when they had been, Peter and John had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, including these little puny guys. Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And for truly in this city they were, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. It's all according to plan. Well, I get that. This is it's according to God's plan that Jesus died. But did I suffer? We'll get there. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Stop right there. Our, our, our outline This morning is really quite simple. We're going to see the disciples' response to the threats, and then I'll say verse 31. Don't look at it. Say verse 31 for God's response to the disciples. How did the disciples respond? They prayed. But there is much that we can learn about their prayer. We see that once they were released, the first thing Peter and John did was to go back to their own companions. The word companions is in the italics because it's not actually in the Greek. Literally, it says they went back to their own (laughs) Because that's the way the church, the community of believers, the church family works. They were in trouble and having just been jailed overnight and threatened. The first place they wanted to go was back to their own. Isn't it interesting to see that persecution drove these believers together? One commentary I read suggests that perhaps one of the reasons for the disunity in the Western church, that's like America. And the Western Church is a lack of persecution, lack of persecution equals lack of unity. Think about it. When the church faces trouble from within, from our meaningless differences, the result is often division. When the church faces trouble from without, uh, from opposition, the result is often unity. External pressures seeking to destroy us actually drives us together. In fact, go to nations around this world, read church history, and you'll find when there is oppression, the church flourishes. (laughs) So the opposition within the church, weakens and divides us. I mean, we got to be fighting. We might as well be fighting each other. And opposition without the church strengthens and unifies it. It almost seems like that's the plan. When these two were in trouble, they went to the church. They shared what was going on, and the church gathered in the face of threats, and their response was prayer. The most natural response for children when threatened by the neighborhood bully is to go running to dad. Look closely at their prayer. First thing that I want you to notice is how they address their father, O Lord. The word is not the typical word for Lord. It could be translated master. In fact, the ESV and the NIV both translate it. I think a good translation, sovereign Sovereign Lord. It speaks, you see, this word of of one with absolute authority and sovereignty and ownership and power. He is in control with absolute authority and power as owner of all creation. That is, after all, he, he made it and he rules it. Yes, they had been threatened by the local authorities, but they had the sovereign Lord of the universe to whom they could appeal. Notice they acknowledge he made everything, giving, them, giving him the right to ownership. He made heaven and earth and everything in them, including these local rulers who were giving them such a hard time. Again, we see this is like the story of two boys fighting in a schoolyard. As the fight begins, they start arguing about whose daddy can whip who. My dad can whip your dad. Well, who's your daddy? Not everyone can address their dad as the sovereign lord of the universe, master. So... We see they were not worried about the petty threats of neighborhood bullies. The same is true for us. We need not worry about opposition we may receive as a result of our witness. What's the worst they can do? The body they may kill. His truth abides still. His kingdom of which you are a part is forever. read an enlightening article that pointed out that this notion, this idea that the safest place in, in the world, the safest place in the world is, to be is in the will of God. How many of you ever heard that before? I'm, I'm here to tell you that's a lie. Well, sort of. The safest place for you to be spiritually is in the will of God. The, the most difficult place for you to be physically is in the will of God. Because opposition will come. But we need not worry. God's in control. attended a seminar that included a section about the importance of evangelism. The the speaker was actually a personal friend of mine and and spoke of the fear often associated with speaking for Christ. And this is what he said. You know, evangelism kind of scares me too, but I... I have learned to speak to my pounding heart. I've never forgotten. I heard that 20 years ago. I've ne- I have learned to speak to my pounding heart. What better thing to speak to your pounding heart than that the sovereign Lord of the universe is your dad? What can they do to you? After addressing him as sovereign Lord, we see secondly, as often in the, ca- the case, they quoted scripture. You might want to write that down. They're so familiar with the scripture that it just came out, it just poured out of their pores. (laughs) And, And they prayed a particular psalm. Why this one? Well, early on, even before the life of Jesus, this passage was seen as a messianic prophecy because it speaks of unbelieving nations with their rulers taking their stand against the Lord and his Christ, which is exactly what happened, right? The opposition of Christ was foreseen. I'll go further, even foreordained. The word Christ is anointed one uh, in Hebrew, from which we get our word uh, Messiah, in Greek, from which we get our English word Christ. Messiah, Christ, God's anointed, refers to the one who would sit forever on David's throne, ruling, reigning as Redeemer, your Savior. And when he came, the Messiah, we read, would be opposed. Of course, this was fulfilled in Jesus. Indeed, we read Herod Pontius Pilate peoples of the earth, including Jews of Jerusalem and the leadership there, did conspire against Jesus, did put Him to death. So should they, they're praying, should they or should we, we're reading, as His followers expect anything less, is the idea. Certainly not. For Jesus promised this kind of treatment. We 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 are seeing in his passion predictions three times. We looked at the first one last week. That included for him was a cross, and included for his followers is a cross. Shouldn't catch us by surprise. What's important is this treatment of Jesus was all according to what God had decided beforehand, even foreordained. He brought it to pass. We talked about this last week in Acts chapter 2. Peter's very first message to to, to Jewish people on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God. Miracles, all, all of that stuff. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. By God, you didn't win because God raised him up. The point very clearly is God is sovereign. He is the one who foreordained all that comes to pass, even the death of his son, even the persecution of his followers. I don't know if I like that. One commentary I read says it this way, God is the supreme historian who wrote all history before it ever began. So they weren't concerned because because nothing could happen apart from God's plan. Peter and John's arrest did not take God by surprise. The command to not teach or preach in the name of Jesus did not shock God. And there is nothing that will happen to us in the name of the gospel that will find God unprepared. In fact, we, we understand that in all things, God works together for good. We all like to quote that verse, right, in Romans chapter 8. I know that, Romans 8, 20, I know that. That's in the midst of suffering. And notice, Paul does not say all things are good. He said God works together all things for our good. Don't misquote the verse. We, like they, can leave things in God's hands. They are often outside of our control. They are never, ever outside of His. At least the next most amazing thing to notice about their prayer, found in verses 29:30. What had they been commanded not to do? Speak in the name of Jesus. What was their prayer in these verses? Lord, please deliver us from persecution. Nope. Deliver us from those who would oppose us. Lord, nuke the Sanhedrin. Nope. They did not pray any of those things. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. Okay, you're dead. Got some bullies, we know you got that. Take note of their threats. But as for us, grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. Knowing that it was God's will that they share Christ, and having been threatened not to speak at all, they prayed that God would help them not just to speak, but to speak boldly. This was... Uh, Not a prayer for protection, but a prayer for power. This was not a sob of petition, but a song of praise. They recognized such boldness was a divine gift of God's spirit. So they prayed, give it to us, give it more. I'm not, here's what I'm saying. Listen, I'm not asking you, I'm not telling you, buck up. You go out there and in human determination and confidence, share Christ. That will never work telling you this is a gift of God's, a divine gift of God's Spirit. God will work through you. Notice, also they asked that God would continue to do miracles among them. They may continue to see the results that they had seen over the past few days and weeks. They recognized miracles, validated their message, and gave them a hearing to be able to share the gospel. And by the way, in the very next chapter we read, God did continue to do miracles, and they did. As a result, continue to share the gospel. So much so that we read the high priests with the sect of the Sadducees. Remember the ones who put him to death. And like resurrection, they were jealous and, and, and they arrested the apostles again. This time, doesn't name the apostles. It's likely all of them. And and then, and then we read this at the end of chapter five. And after calling the apostles, all of them probably in, they flogged them. That's a serious beating. Order them not to preach or or not speak in the name of Jesus and then release them. And so they went on their way from the presence of the council. These are some of the most amazing words I have ever read. Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer suffer shame for his name. Talk about this more next week. The early church kind of misinterpreted that a little bit. We don't run to persecution, nor do we run from it. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. You can tell us to shut up if you want to. We're going to preach it. You can beat us if you want to. We're going to preach it. All that's point one. Point two in this shortened sermon. That's a joke. Point two, one verse, verse 31 Actually, is our conclusion. Just what exactly did God think of their prayer? Let's read the verse that you have not read ahead and seen yet. And when they prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. (laughs) That's why I chose this text. This is it right there. Three things happened. First, Luke says that the place where they were meeting was shaken. God shook the building. We should not assume, as some have, that they were so filled with the Holy Spirit that they began to shake. No! The text clearly says that the place that they were meeting was shaken. I wish that he would do that today to get our attention. A story told by Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor of Westminster Chapel in London during World War II, during the time of... German bombing of London, the church continued to meet. On one occasion, a bomb fell just a couple of blocks away and leveled an entire building. Pastor Lloyd-Jones says that the building where they were meeting was shaken so violently that it literally was moved about a foot off of its foundation. His point was, if man can make a bomb that will move a building, he didn't think it was that big of a deal for God to do so. These early believers were so in tune with the mind and heart of God that he gave them a visible display of his pleasure and approval, "I like that prayer." And he answered their prayer, shook their building, which leads to the next two things. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, not a new baptism. they were just filled with the Holy Spirit, and spoke the word of God boldly. "I like the prayer, go do it." Listen to a sermon on this passage by pastor of Park Street Church in Boston, he suggested, Perhaps the reason that God does not shake our buildings today when we pray is that we don't pray like this. We pray more prayers for protection than we do for power, than for proclamation. Too concerned about our own agendas, our own purposes of using God like a magic potion to get what we want. Maybe if we prayed more like this with God's kingdom his larger purposes in mind to enlarge his kingdom, there's no telling what he might do. I'm suggesting that we do the same thing today. Shake our building, he can if he wants to, it's his. He can do whatever he wants, he can level it, don't care. I do want his will in our new building such that despite rising opposition, the glory of the gospel will shine brightly in this community. We can ask God to enable us to share the gospel of Jesus boldly. We can ask him to give us opportunities to share our faith and then give us boldness to do so. And we can be confident that he will answer the request because it is in his heart to do so. My question in closing is this. Do we really want this kind of power in sharing our faith? Do we want to fill that building with other sheep or do we want to see new sheep made and then discipled? If that's what we want, then we must speak boldly. And in order to speak boldly, we must be filled by His Spirit. So let's pray and ask for it. Would you stand, please? Um, Father, uh, Jim Folk said to me after... Uh, This first service that one of his favorite commentators says this is the most important passage in Acts. (laughs) It's, It's a passage that reminds us that we are to be about the business of boldly declaring the gospel of Jesus and to be filled by the Spirit in order to do so. So right now, I pray for the fullness of your Spirit in this room, in your people, not, not 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 for a building, but for a people to be able to go from here to share faith. Persecution and opposition will come, but you will do your work and you will save people from their sin. I pray that you would fill this building, these buildings, this campus. I pray that we run out of room again, not because we're rearranging saints, but because new believers are being made and discipled. Use us to enlarge your kingdom, I pray in Christ's name.